This is episode number 161 with AI entrepreneur Sinan Ozdemir. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you on board. And today we have a returning guest. Sinan Ozdemir is on the show for the second time. Originally he came on back in uh, on episode 21, which was at the very start of 2017. How quickly does time fly? And for those of you who weren't with the podcast back then or missed that episode, I'll quick give a quick overview. So Sinan is an artificial intelligence entrepreneur. He's the founder and chief technology officer of Kylie.ai, a startup that aims to automate a lot of communications that enterprises have with their customers. And we'll talk about that of course, in this episode, actually at the end of this episode, we'll talk about that. Uh, Sinan's also a contributor on, on Forbes in the space of artificial intelligence. Uh, he's a, an instructor with General Assembly and he's an author. So he's published two books. Uh, in his first appearance on this podcast, we talked about uh, his first book, The Principles of Data Science, and we got lots of valuable insights from there. And this time we're talking about his second book, his newest book, Feature Engineering Made Easy. And again, we're going to get lots and lots of insights. Uh, this whole, most of this podcast is about feature engineering and how to uh, create features or select your features and manipulate your features in machine learning problems to get the best possible outcome, whether it is accuracy or speed or uh, some sort of um, unsupervised type of learning. So Sinan will walk us through all of these valuable uh, insights and give us the very, very juicy parts that are contained in his book. So that's what this podcast is all about. Lots of uh, fun things. And what I like about this one as well is that we dive straight in. There's so much to cover that, uh, and plus we already know Sinan from the previous episode, that as soon as we kick off, we're going to dive straight into feature engineering. So I hope you're ready for this and let's get started. Without further ado, I bring to you AI entrepreneur, Sinan Ozdemir. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today, for the second time, I've got returning guest, Sinan Ozdemir. Sinan, welcome back. How are you going? Thank you so much for having me again. So, <laughs> so happy to be here. Nice. Yeah. So so excited. What what's been happening in your life? It's been it's been quite a while. It's been has it been over a year since we chatted last time? Yeah, it's definitely been over a year. It's it's probably closer to two years since I've been on. Oh wow, that's crazy. I think so. No, it must be no. It should yeah, probably no, be lot, like one and a half happened. or something. But yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. What? So a lot yeah, has happened. Us. Last time I was. Yeah, last time I was on, 
uh, I was talking about my, my new book, my first book, mm-hmm. actually, The Principles of Data Science. Mm-hmm. And now I have a, new, a second book, a new book. Congratulations. It's so exciting. When, when you uh, emailed me, I was like, wow, is there, you got a second book. That's so cool. That uh, must have been a massive effort because last time I remember you were saying how much time you invested. I think you invested like the good, good portion, and this is a quote from you, like good a uh, good portion of 2016 into that book and now and now you you decided to do it again I did yeah it was such a massive effort the first time I I ended up working with a colleague of mine uh Divya she and I actually co-wrote this new book together and she and I actually worked together at at my startup but there was such a great response from the first book uh, people were buying it and telling me how much it was how useful it was when they were trying to figure out data science uh, as as novices in the field, and, and it got to a point where they said, "Well, we finished the book; it was great, but I have so many more questions." Mm-hmm. So this this second book is an attempt to continue that knowledge. So it's a little bit more advanced than the first book. It, it assumes that you have knowledge of the principles of data science and this book uh, features heavily uh, feature engineering so mm-hmm. the book is called feature engineering made easy mm-hmm. yeah feature engineering made easy I'm, i don't have a copy unfortunately yet uh because i'm just looking at it on amazon um but i did by the way i did pick up a copy of your uh, first book principles of data science and i really liked the way you described things i think like you use you use our programming correct to for your examples there in principles of data science so the books are the books are primarily in python python, 100% python, python. my bad python i get those confused sometimes so yeah so i was just like reading through the examples there and um very hands-on and i like how the pages are big right so you like you you browse through it and there's a lot of space so nothing is crammed up and uh, you can actually see the code and read it properly well so yeah, so feature engineering made easy. What is this about? Yeah, so if you ask any of your friends or colleagues who are data scientists or really anyone who works a lot with data sets, uh, one of the number one things they'll tell you is people put a lot of emphasis on the modeling part of data science, statistical modeling, machine learning models, um, artificial intelligence, neural networks, there's a lot of emphasis on how do I build models for mm-hmm. my data. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously a huge part of machine learning and data science. But more than half of a data scientist's time, and this is according to several surveys, more than half of a data scientist's time is not spent on modeling. It's actually spent on working with the data before the modeling even takes place. Mm-hmm. So this is the part where the data scientist obtains the data, looks at the data, learns about the data, transforms the data, alters the data. They do all of these you know, feature engineering is the, is the science and art of changing your columns and your rows of your data to make sure that when it's time to introduce the models, you know, linear regressions, k-nearest neighbors, neural nets, whatever it is, your data is at an optimal position to be accepted by the models. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I like how you put it. It's the art of manipulating the data or changing the columns um, of the data in order to make sure that it's uh, ready for analysis. You get the optimal. 
so so that's very very cool and so um tell us like for somebody who doesn't do uh, ha- hasn't gotten exposure to this much yet why why is it why is it necessary to read a whole book about feature engineering isn't it just like you know put a few columns here and there and, and it's all done what what are the main pillars of your book there are two big pillars i would say when it comes to working with feature engineering and why there has to be this massive effort you know why why does there have to be this big book on it mm-hmm. you know why you're right why isn't it just put a couple columns here and let the model figure it out. Mm-hmm. That's actually the first pillar. Most people think that the models, the machine learning models, can just figure it out. Mm-hmm. And that's a really big misconception in machine learning, especially at the at the higher up executive levels, the people who are actually making the decision to purchase machine learning models or, or get a vendor uh, like um, Kylie.ai or mm-hmm. some other kind of an AI vendor is, well, the whole point is the machine learning will just figure it out. Mm-hmm. Correct. The problem there is there's kind of a saying in data science, you know, garbage in, garbage out. And that kind of refers to uh, if you take really bad data and you put really bad data into a machine learning model, you're going to get really bad results, predictions out. Mm-hmm. So the machine learning model can't do everything. It can't figure out everything on its own. It's only going to be as good as the data coming in. So that really big misconception is kind of where the, the foundation of this book is rooted. We want to uh, move away from this idea that the models will just handle everything for you, and it removes the human element from machine learning entirely. So the book is really meant to kind of give humans, give data scientists a guide on how to work with the data given to you. So the first pillar is machine learning models can't do everything for you. Mm-hmm. The second pillar is, well, not only can the machine learning models not do everything for you, sometimes you are forced to do feature engineering. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you wanted to make uh, one of my favorite examples to give in any classes I give or conferences I speak at or books, uh, any any example that I write, I love to predict the price of uh, publicly traded stocks mm-hmm. based entirely on publicly available tweets about that stock price. So I would take a moment in time read the tweets about that stock price, so GE or Apple or Amazon, read the tweets about that stock price, and then predict whether or not that price is going to go up or down in the next 24 hours to make a purchasing decision. Mm -hmm. Well, if the only thing coming in is raw text, tweets that people are writing, you can't feed in raw text as is into a machine learning model. You have to manipulate it. You have to transform it into a row column structure. So that in itself is feature engineering. You're creating new features based on raw text. And this is so crucial when you're dealing with raw data like text, images, videos, voice. All of these things cannot be fed into a machine learning or AI model as they exist. You have to transform them. So one of the chapters in the book is dealing with image and object recognition and using neural nets to uh, grab features from images from where there weren't features before. Mm -hmm. So really it's about 
machine learning models can't do everything for you. And sometimes you just have to employ machine learning or feature engineering rather to do anything at all. Mm -hmm. Okay, makes sense. Makes sense. When you put it so, so like at a much broader level like that, because I was just picturing columns and, um, yeah, like even in a structured data set with rows and columns, you, you can still, and some you probably should apply feature engineering to come up with the, the right features that are most useful for analysis. But when you put it into such a broad context of images and videos and all of this unstructured type of data, yeah, it totally, totally makes sense. So is your book predominantly about unstructured data or do you give tips for structured data as well? It's actually, I would say 60% of it is about structured data mm -hmm. and 40% is about unstructured data. And the reason that split is like that is because a majority of machine learning engineers work with structured data mm -hmm. and they think that just because it's structured, you're done. That's yeah. enough. Yeah. But it's not. You have to take that structured data and make it even better. So then, then there come the tips like standardization, normalization dimension expansion and reduction picking the best features feature selection extraction just because you already have structured data and just because you started with structured data doesn't mean you're done there's so much more to do mm -hmm. gotcha okay well can you give us an example like a, a real life example of i don't know a column like um age and or or balance or income and then how would you combine two different columns or uh, how how would you do a feature engineering exercise in a structured data set? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one of the examples that I like to give because it's it's fairly simple and yet very relevant uh, is the trying to predict uh, something very common like the price of a house or a car based on features of that object. Mm -hmm. So let's take an example of a car. If you're trying to buy a used car and you have all these websites out there, right? I'm sure everyone has seen an ad in the last week mm -hmm. about some new website that tells you the best way to predict the price of a used car based on all of these features about the car, what other people have paid and how old is the car and how many miles are on the car, mm -hmm. right? That's a very simple predictive algorithm. If you input the features about the car, how old is it? How many miles are on it? What is the make of the car? What is the model of the car? Mm -hmm. um, and then you output the price of that used car. That is a very simple predictive model. Yep. So you could just use it as is. Input the price of the car. And let's make, let's make it even easier. Let's say we only have two features about the car. We have the uh, average miles per gallon of that car, the MPG. And we also have the number of miles on the car total. Mm -hmm. I said those are the only two things you have, mm -hmm. and you want to predict the price. Now, let's say for the purposes of this example, you really, really want to use a K nearest neighbors model. Mm -hmm. The reason you want to do so is because you want to compare that car to other similar cars so that you can provide to your customer an average price based on the features of the car. Mm -hmm. So you have the miles per gallon and the total number of miles on the car. Yeah. Now, those two numbers exist on very different levels because your miles per gallon is probably going to be something in the you know, 
tens, twenties, thirties, forties. It's going to be a, a very low, low number, less than fifty. Yeah. But then when you look at the miles on the car, the total number of miles, you're easily in the thousands, tens of thousands. You know, you you get up there very quickly. Mm-hmm. Now the problem then is if you're using a model like KNM, which uses Euclidean distance to make uh, the similarity scores, you end up with these two very different axes of data, miles per gallon and miles, in such a way that the model gets very, very confused. And it gets so confused that the KNN will predominantly need to rely on the number of miles on the car because that's the larger number. Mm-hmm. So if you don't do anything to those two features, your predictions are going to be way off. Now, to fix this problem, very simply, in you know, the second chapter or first second chapter of the book, you can use a technique called standardization, mm-hmm. where instead of saying this car has this many miles or this car has an average 30 miles per gallon, you can say, well, this car has an average 30 miles per gallon which is a little bit less than average. Mm -hmm. So you actually take a Z-score of the entire column and say, well, let me compare this number to the average miles per gallon. Or let's take the number of miles on the car and say, well, this car has 100,000 miles on it, which is actually very much above the average number of miles on a car. Yeah. So you're actually standardizing those two things to say, well, instead of saying the the number as it is, uh, as you know, as is, let's standardize it and compare it to the average number, so that now both of them still retain their uh, their scalings, but compared to each other, are much more uh, closer in value. Mm-hmm. So that's like a very simple example of using standardization just to affect two columns on a data set. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And while you were actually talking, I thought of an example that, or you reminded me of an example that we, I actually, I came across in, uh, in real life when I was working at a superannuation firm. Uh, there was an, a, a model we were building, I think it was a logistic regression, and there was a column for, uh, what was it? There was a column for the balance uh, of like of a user or of a member and then there's a column for age and you know separately those columns were of course descriptive and they had some uh, value in the logistic regression but they really did uh, create a brand new variable when you combine them when you took the balance and you divided it by age you got the balance per age right so that mm-hmm. shows you how quickly people are accumulating wealth. Are they accumulating wealth quicker than their peers or slower, right? So maybe you have somebody with a very high balance who's very young or somebody with a very low balance who's, uh, you know, in their senior years. And that adds some additional information about the person and their spending habits or their um, accumulating of balance habits. And that in itself is able like tricks like that are capable of improving the model's predictive powers. So what you just described is actually a concept called feature construction. Mm-hmm. It's when it's actually a very human oriented task. It's when you figure out that there's a combination of features that you can put together 
to construct a brand new feature. Mm -hmm. So another example of this would be to say um, a very famous data set that pretty much everyone uses in their data science classroom is the Titanic Yes. Data set, are you familiar? So yes. if you're unfamiliar, basically you're, you're trying to predict whether or not someone survived the sinking of the Titanic, spoiler alert, <laughs> given features about the passenger. And those features can be very, at first glance, odd. You just have their name or you have, you know, what ID was it on their ticket. But then you have more interesting variables like, uh, were they first, second, or third class? And then that's where you can start to get very predictive with it. But one of my favorite things to do with a Titanic data set is say, well, you're given about 20 features. Can you pick the two most predictive features and only use those to predict survival? Mm -hmm. And then that's a very usually very simple task. That's called feature selection. You just select the features that are the most predictive. And then I give my students a challenge. I say, okay, now that you've picked the best predictive columns, forget about them. Look at the other 18 features and now change them to make them as predictive as those two that you, we just threw away. And that's a challenge now. So now you have to actually extract information from those seemingly quote unquote bad columns. So one way to do this is one of the generally the most predictive features um, is, you know, whether or not they were male or female, because, you know, at the time, you know, women and children first onto the lifeboat. So, yep. you know, that, that column is very predictive of whether or not someone survived. So a lot of people, would, I would tell them, throw that away. And then they have to come up with something else. So one thing that I really like that people do is you're given the name of the passenger, and a lot of times in the name, they will say something like Mr. or Miss or Mrs. Mm -hmm. So you can actually extract that information from the name and use it again. So it's, it becomes an exercise in constructing and extracting information from features which you are about to throw away just because they were not as good as those two most predictive features. That's kind of a moral of the book is – don't throw things away just because they seem unimportant. They might hold some valuable information if you can just combine it with something else or look a little bit deeper. And that's actually much more of a manual, human-oriented process. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And uh, that's, that's a great example, by the way, for our listeners. If uh, somebody wants a good exercise, I think that that's perfect. Try that. Pick the... Titanic data set and throw away the two most uh, predictive columns and then try uh, get the same results with the rest. Um, what I want to say is that what was uh, something that's going on through my mind? Um, yeah, so with uh, feature engineering, it sometimes can be as simple as taking a variable and turning it upside down. Would you say that that is considered feature engineering? Like, let's say, I don't know, you have gallons per mile and you turn them or you, you have miles per gallon and you turn them to gallons per mile or you know you have um, I don't know speed and you invert it and you get one over speed and that turns out to be more descriptive uh, would you consider that feature engineering as well 100 absolutely 
that is 100% feature engineering. Feature engineering is any process that you take to change your columns, change your features in some way to make your results more favorable, to mm-hmm. make them better in, in whatever you define as better. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a big part of the book is you have to understand what the purpose of feature engineering is to you. Mm-hmm. More often than not, the point of feature engineering is to eventually put it through a machine learning model to optimize accuracy, root mean squared error, whatever type of metric that you're that you're using. But sometimes you want to optimize a different metric like precision or recalls. Other times you're trying to maximize or minimize rather the time it takes to make a prediction. So if, if you want to do feature engineering to a point where your machine learning model is much quicker, you might actually lose some accuracy by picking the two best features out of 100, but your model has become 20 times faster. So you have to keep in mind the point of the feature engineering. Mm-hmm. Okay, you have a few examples there. So you might want like the most predictive model, you might want the, the most accurate model, the fastest model. What other uh, goals might one have in the uh, exercise of feature engineering? So, like I said, the two probably the most common are uh, results and speed. Mm-hmm. So, if you want to maximize accuracy or minimize the time to prediction, those are probably your or, or some kind of a metric optimization. That's usually the goal. Uh, sometimes you're doing feature engineering with an um, more of an unsupervised methodology. Mm-hmm. So you're not trying to actually predict something, perhaps you're trying to cluster. So a, a big example that I give, and this is actually pretty relevant to my startup, Kylie.ai, is if you take a bunch of tweets or text or raw text objects, mm-hmm. you perform feature engineering to turn that text into row column structured data. And then from there, you can perform clustering or topic modeling to try to understand the structure of the raw text themselves. So it's not always about prediction. And that's uh, a lot of the times when people hear the words machine learning, their minds immediately go to predictive modeling, predictive analytics. Mm -hmm. And that's very common. It's a very common aspect of machine learning, but it's not the whole story. A lot of the times clustering or topic modeling or dimension reduction, those types of unsupervised methods are actually the desired output of feature engineering. Mm-hmm. So you can't measure things like accuracy or, or root mean squared error when you're trying to understand, well, I have a million pieces of text. Perhaps there are a million emails that I received. And I want to understand what are the top five things people are talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what are people saying? To, I can't read a million emails. What are people trying to tell me? I can take a million pieces of text. I can take the actual words, the letters, the alphanumeric characters, turn them into a row column structure through something like a TFIDF or count vectorizer, perform a clustering, uh, like a latent Dirichlet allocation or even a simple K-means and say, wow, in these million emails, people are talking to me about X, Y, Z, and so on and so forth. So it's not always about predictive. Sometimes it can be about 
unsupervised. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. That's a, that's a great example. And so basically by uh, engineering these features, you can get the different clustering or maybe by changing the input columns, you can adjust the, the output clusters. Not, that in, not in the sense that you're manipulating your results, but you're you like you run the clustering you get the uh, you, you get your clusters and then you realize this is not actually you apply your domain knowledge you see that this is not actually what is going is probably going on in the real world this contradicts certain things that i can see from my domain knowledge from my business knowledge and then you adjust your columns and then you get a different result and at some point it's going to uh, hopefully match what you know from business knowledge would, would that be a good example of feature engineering in action? Well, you, you actually said something very interesting. You, you said it's not like manipulating your results. And that's actually a very kind of almost a philosophical point. Mm-hmm. Because when you hear the phrase manipulate your results, the word manipulate obviously has a very bad connotation, yeah. right? Manipulating means that you're doing it for you know, malicious purposes. Mm-hmm. But in a sense, feature engineering is the art of manipulating your results. Oh, gotcha. But not because in a... Not bad way not, but in, not a in a bad way you're doing way. it in a, in a mathematical a statistical and a logical way mm-hmm. and the whole and that's why to come back to your first question that's why you need a whole book on it mm-hmm. because if you're going to be manipulating your results you need to be doing it with all the rules in mind you have to make sure that you're following all of the rules and then if you follow the rules and your results get better you have manipulated your results for the better by not breaking any rules. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, makes makes sense. Makes total sense. And um, it it's slowly starting to you know build a better picture or like a clearer picture of what feature engineering is all about and why most importantly why you need to be careful or knowledgeable about it. Right? There's so many ways. It seems easy, but there's so many ways of going about it the wrong way that you're gonna get inadvertently results that don't mean anything or mean or have been manipulated in that in that bad sense of things and so yeah it's it's actually an interesting idea how did you come up with the idea of um, writing a book you said your students were asking for more insights and more information but like I'm assuming you could have gone in many different directions why feature engineering Right. So actually, my publisher for this book is the same publisher as the first book, Pact Publishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were coming to me with ideas for a second book. And the ideas that they were uh, coming coming with were about more advanced data science, right? Because I'd already written the principles of data science. It's for beginners. They wanted something a little bit more advanced. Mm-hmm. And actually, they were the ones who pitched this idea of feature engineering. And it was actually very serendipitous because I had been, at the time, uh, giving a couple of lectures, um, guest lectures at university about the process of manipulating your data and why it's such the, almost like a taboo subject or you know, what are the rules around changing your data for the purposes of getting better results that we were just talking about. So mm-hmm. when they came to me with this idea of feature engineering made easy, it just kind of made sense because it, it's the next step 
after you know, understanding the, the basics of modeling. And, and the first book really does focus a lot on the math and the, and the modeling and the machine learning side of things, but doesn't really ever talk about feature engineering at all. Mm-hmm. So the feature engineering book really was the next, to me at least, the next logical step. And when I approached my co-author, uh, Divya Sasarala, she's a data scientist at Kylie.ai. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I approached her with the subject, she actually, you know, her her wheel started turning immediately because she uh, she's she's known mostly for dealing with text data, raw text data, and so she every day deals with this problem of turning raw text into features. Mm-hmm. So to her, it also just made sense. Like this is such an obvious problem that people are not really talking about too much. They kind of just assume you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So we wrote this book really as a guide to people who, who really want to take that next step as data scientists. You know, they understand the basics of modeling and they, they think machine learning is cool, but they have, there's this black box. And it's funny because usually when people say, oh, the black box of machine learning, it's, oh, I don't know how this machine learning model works or I don't know how this neural network works. But ironically, because of that, people have written books and articles and papers on how machine learning works so much that data scientists now have a pretty good idea. Uh, Even novice data scientists have a very good idea of how machine learning models work. So the new black box is, what is this data I'm putting into the model? Mm -hmm. How do I work with this data? Do I just take it as is? Is this enough? That's the new black box in data science. And that's why we wanted to write this book, to tackle that issue. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Very, very um, great idea, I think. And uh, you mentioned that this is the, the next step after your previous book. From what level would you say a data scientist should start learning or worrying about feature engineering and learning more about it? Like, obviously, it's not an entry-level subject. You don't start with that. But after, after what checkpoint in their career should they pick up a book like yours? So that's an interesting question because I would argue that feature engineering is the type of subject that should be taught incrementally throughout the data scientist career. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not something that I would say, well, now that you've been a data scientist for three years, now you should start learning about standardization and normalization and, and feature engineering. I think you should have been learning about it from day one. Mm-hmm. The first day someone said, you know, this is linear aggression or this is KNN, they should also follow that up by saying, now that we're approaching this concept of machine learning, we have to also talk about the fact that the data that you put into this model will reflect your results coming out. So if, if anything, I would say you should kind of go back and forth between the first and the second book. Learn some data science, learn some feature engineering, learn some more modeling, learn some more feature engineering. Because I think I said earlier on, more than half of the data scientist's time is spent on data manipulation, is spent on feature engineering, whether they like it or not. Mm-hmm. So getting the basics of feature engineering is so, so, so important, even in the beginning of the data scientist career. Now, the end of the book, we start getting into uh, feature learning, using TensorFlow, using neural nets to extract features from data. 
that's a bit more heavy subject that maybe the novice data scientist who's who doesn't know much about neural nets uh, should probably hold off on. But the first half of the book is really talking about very, very simple and yet very, very powerful statistical transformations of data that even the novice data scientist uh, can get a handle on and use practically in their life. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. That's, uh, that's a good point. A uh, good way of putting it. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. Like many things, I guess, uh, learn them incrementally bit by bit and get the benefit out of it. Would you say your book is structured in a way that facilitates such learning, like incremental, step by step? I would say so. And uh, I write all of my books kind of with the, in the mindset of a teacher, because mm-hmm. I used to be a teacher. I would teach at university. I taught at the General Assembly, the dev boot camps for data science, and I've taught at conferences and in person a lot. So mm-hmm. whenever I write a book, and, and Divya, I believe, is the same way as me, we write books specifically as if we were in front of students in a classroom. Mm-hmm. So we're teaching it like, hey, remember last chapter when I talked yeah, about yeah. this? Well, let's take that and make it better. So we're, we're always speaking like that. We're always saying, hey, remember in chapter four when we have a Titanic data set, but we couldn't get it past 90% accuracy? Well, let's bring it back knowing what we know now, and let's see if we can do a little bit better. So the whole book is just constantly referencing itself and, and saying, well, you know, you know how we couldn't get it you know, that good before? Well, let's try with this new method. So sometimes you'll see the same data sets appearing multiple times with new methodologies being applied to it so that you get this kind of journey going on with the book. As you're reading it, you're saying, wow, you know, with standardization, I was able to double my accuracy. And then by the end of the book, you say, wow, this one data set has been through so much. And it really drives home this idea that if you have a data set, you don't have to just apply one or two feature engineering tasks. You should be trying several, even up to a dozen feature engine, and there are more than a dozen techniques in this book to choose from, each of which have their pros and cons. You should be trying many different types of feature engineering, and, and the book is constantly just speaking as if you are in my classroom and I'm speaking to you as your teacher. Love it. I love that approach, and I personally use that journey approach myself in courses. I love to create tutorials in a way that the next tutorial falls on from the previous one in a way that is like when you get to the end of a tutorial, you have learned something tangible that's impacted, that's going to impact your career. But at the same time, there's like a cliffhanger that makes you want to hear more, makes you want to learn more. And you're like, oh, I can't wait to see what happens next. And especially if it's not just about, you know, what what's uh, next in this uh, te- technical stuff, but what's next in the story that we're following, you know, this Titanic data set or or this visualization that we're building, or this other thing that we're doing. I, I think that, that it's an art, really, for educators to be able to convey information and education in a way that is not just like raw, like raw uh, value, but it's also entertaining, that it's also captivating and engaging for the readers and the audience. So that's, that's very exciting. I'm very... Uh, excited to hear that you've incorporated that in, in your book. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, I don't think I could even present this information in such a raw value way 
In fact, I, I'm told a lot that I am specifically requested sometimes because of the way that I present the information mm-hmm. and because it's, it's, it's done in such a way that it feels like even, even people who are in their fifties and sixties who are attending my classes, uh, who are executives at large companies, they come to me afterwards and say, I felt like I was in college again and I actually enjoyed it this time. <laughs> that's so cool. And that's what I really want to hear. I yeah. want to hear that this is the way you were meant to be taught some of these really simple things yeah. that just didn't really click until you know sometimes 30 years later. Yeah. And now that it clicks, go forth and use it. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, well, I have, a, I have an interesting question on this. Um, so we discussed quite a lot of different types of feature engineering or like a, f- a few examples and I'm sure there are lots more. And that does stand to show that indeed this is not something that you just throw into a machine learning algorithm and it, it will do everything for you. However, machines are getting smarter and faster and more versatile. Do you think that feature engineering will ever be automated to an extent that we'll never have to worry about it again? In a, in a way, yes. Mm-hmm. So... At towards the end of the book, I talk about a concept called feature learning. Mm-hmm. Now, feature learning is using deep learning neural networks to extract information from unstructured or structured data in such a way that it automatically optimizes the information extracted for the purposes of predictive or or unsupervised learning. Mm-hmm. So. In a way, we're already at a point where some algorithms can automatically extract such information. And you can always make an argument that hyperparameter searching and brute force parameter tuning uh, is, uh, is, in a way, a form of automated feature engineering. So you can already make that argument. Now, the problem, which is why I don't think it will ever be 100% fully automated, is every data has a source, right? There's the data source. It comes from somewhere. And sometimes that place is very rough, and sometimes that place is very smooth. For example, if I want to predict, or or that example where I had a million emails coming in, what's the source of that data? A human brain. A human brain sat down, wrote me an email, and hit send. That's the source of the data. So now, the, the feature learning algorithm has to somehow automate that grabbing of information and has to somehow evolve and learn as language changes. Mm -hmm. That's the point where I don't think we are fully there yet. Mm -hmm. The second type of source can be kind of a smoother. So it's not as a rough, raw text. For example, if you're trying to uh, make a prediction about your company's churn rate and how fast will your, your customers stay or leave, your company, your product, the data that's coming in is sometimes a little bit smoother. It's easier to obtain. You have things like the number of hours that they spend on your website. You might know something like the number of employees at the company that is purchasing your product. This is all much easier numbers to deal with. It's quantitative versus qualitative data. And in that sense, uh, automated feature engineering is much easier because you already have these kind of structured points from which to learn from. Now, each method has pros and cons. The big pro 
of rough data is that there's so much potential to extract information. Mm-hmm. If you're just learning from raw speech and text and what humans say out loud, there's so much potential to understand, well, was he kidding? Was he sarcastic? What did he mean? Did he, did he mean to make this typo? Was he rushing? What time of day did he send this email? There's so much metadata around that. Now, the problem is with the smooth data, you don't really have that metadata. There's not, it's not really quote unquote interesting. It's mm-hmm. just data. It's just, this is the number of people at the company. This is how many hours they spent on your website. And that's it. You can't really do much, which is why it's easier to automate the feature engineering is because there's not too much to do. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of two sides of, of that coin. And we're already at a point where a lot of this feature engineering can be automated, but I think that we're not going to lose that human touch in the next you know, couple of decades even because there's always going to be that domain knowledge. You're always going to be able to look at the result and say, mm, I don't think this is the best that it could do. Let me try my hand at combining and selection and extraction. So unfortunately, the answer is yes and no, which is not the best answer to give usually. Yeah, yeah gotcha, gotcha. But thanks for the overview. We at least know... Uh, what kind of to expect in the in the coming years, and and what the difference is between the smooth and the rough data? That was interesting. Um, okay, so I think we'll uh, we'll shift gears from here a little bit. So that's that was feature engineering. If anybody wants to learn more, then definitely check out the book feature feature engineering made e- easy by Sinan Ozdemir. It's available on Amazon, and I'm sure you can get it other places. Um, I wanted to ask you a few other things, like how have you been in the in the past couple of years, how how's your baby project or how's your project or your baby, uh, Kylie.ai going? Kylie.ai, which is uh, my startup that I started a few years ago, is going very, very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are just now at a point where we are uh, getting enterprise deals and contracts and we're working with large Fortune 200 companies to automate a lot of the conversations that they're having with their customers. So we're, uh, as a startup, we're finally at a place where we are actually demonstrating our value. And we're really, because the last time we talked, I believe we had just raised a, a seed round. Mm-hmm. And now just a, a year and a half later, we're, we're finally realizing that value and demonstrating that value to our customers. And it's been, it's been really exciting. We've been hiring, we've been learning a lot about the landscape of AI in the enterprise which is a very different conversation than AI with you know, hackers or AI with smaller companies who have different needs. And that conversation has been very interesting. So recently I started writing for uh, Forbes.com and in a lot of my articles for Forbes.com, I, I talk about this AI need in the enterprise and why it's a different need for SMBs, you know, small to medium sized businesses and and that kind of a shift uh, between how AI is perceived has been something that Kylie has been, had to navigate. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Very, very interesting. Tell, tell us a bit more about Kylie for those who weren't here for the first episode. Of course. So Kylie.ai is a startup that focuses specifically on using AI to automate communications between companies and their customers. So what that means is if you ever chat in or call in and you get that very kind of robotic, um, hello, you know, please press one for billing information or press two for password resets or, or something like that, 
we aim to replace those kind of stagnant systems with a much more conversational dialogue based uh, modeling. Mm-hmm. So we really want to uh, have a conversation with the customer. You know, so instead of saying, you know, please wait for all 27 options that you can <laughs> dial in and just say, what are you here for today? How, how can we help? Yeah. You know, and based on the number, we can look up your account, you know, while you're talking and we'll say, well, I'm having a problem with my account that I need to you know, make sure that this number is right. Well, that's great. Well, let me look that up for you. So it's really replacing that really static and stagnant robotic uh, conversation that you have over chat, you know, tweet, voice, whatever, and replacing that with a much more fluid conversation because that's how people talk. And it's kind of what people are expecting now from chat applications. Mm-hmm. They're really expecting a conversation. And that's why Kylie is focused so specifically on delivering fluid conversation. Hmm, that's really cool. And so uh, is that going to be different to like sometimes we like sometimes I call up a bank and I get this uh, robot saying, hello, my name is Mary. And today I'm going to you know, direct your call. Tell me what your call is all about. And a lot of the times they're so inaccurate and just annoying. So I actually prefer the, the press one, press two, press three. How is Kylie different to those uh, annoying voice robots? Mm-hmm. So one of the big differences is that, you know, Mary in this example is going to route your call to an agent, Yep. right? So she's going to listen to you and you're going to say something like, I need to, you know, open an account or close an account. Mary hopefully understands that and says, great, I will route you to our customer service center in, you know, Austin, Texas, which deals with this situation. Yep. And then now you kind of wasted your time because you've been speaking to Mary, who had no intention of really helping you, just yeah. putting you in the right place, yes, right, exactly. which you could easily press the button for. Yeah. What's really different is we want to be the full service here. So we want to continue that conversation. So instead of directing it to Austin, Texas, or wherever the customer service department is immediately, we're going to actually try to actually solve your problem. Oh, nice. Because in a lot of the enterprise companies that we talk to, a, a good portion of it, not usually the majority, but uh, about half of their conversations are very, very short in comparison. They, they, it's not a lot of back and forth. The customer really had a simple question. It was a very simple question that really only re- required two responses from the agent. And then they hung up because they got their question answered. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Mm-hmm. These are the really easy, what we call uh, in the customer service industry, tier one. They're really kind of simple questions and dialogues. Those, those tier one conversations are the types of conversations that Kylie uh, is going to handle. Mm-hmm. And that what makes that really interesting is, well, if Kylie's handling the tier one tickets, the humans, the agents who are still there, are going to have more time and more, you know, mental capacity to handle those harder tickets, mm-hmm. the tier twos and the tier threes that require, you know, 10, 15 minutes on the phone. Yeah. Now the humans have more time. So what you get are agents, human agents who work for the company with less stress because they have more time to deal with the harder questions and less monotonous questions. And you also have more satisfied customers. Because the customers who called in for a 20-second phone call are done. They got the question answered, and they're moving on with their day. They're fine. 
But you also have these people who have actually real long in-depth conversations with agents because they have a very difficult problem. They feel like they're getting heard more because the agents are actually spending more time with them. So you get this this kind of double benefit. The customers are happy and the company is happy while we're saving them money because we're automating and, and deflecting a lot of these conversations away from humans. Yeah, and you're probably also cutting down the churn because the wait time is much less now. People exactly. get Kylie responding pretty much instantly. Yeah, so average handling time uh, and, and things like that, these these metrics for the customer service department, they vastly improve because we're automating. It's, the conversations can be quicker if it's an easy question. Wow. Well, congratulations. That sounds super exciting. And no wonder you're now writing for Forbes, which is also great. Fantastic, uh, you know, new step. So congrats on that too. And you mentioned before the podcast that you're going to speak at a conference on entrepreneurship uh, later this year. What, can you tell us a bit about that? So you're going to be presenting Kylie there? Absolutely. So the, the World Summit for Innovation and Entrepreneurship uh, is an annual conference being held October 15th and 16th in New York City. And this is actually going to be my first time at this summit. But what I'll be speaking about is I'll be giving a town hall on the, the future of intelligence. So what I'm going to be speaking about is, is not so much about Kylie specifically, mm-hmm. but about the the role of AI, not just in the enterprise, but in the world and in government and smaller business for the individuals. You know, what kinds of AI can we expect, should we expect um, going forward? And that's really what I want to be talking about. And, and what I really want to be talking about is how do we make AI more accessible to the individual? How do we make AI, how do we put AI in the hands of people who don't really understand it, but could benefit from it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Um, that's, uh, so any, any spoilers? Can you give us like a little preview, a teaser of what, what your answer to that question is going to be? <laughs> of course. So my philosophy on this, it, it revolves around the idea that when there's a new technology you know, I, I, I'll go back to even say the internet, the car, when there's a new technology out there, at first, it, it's in the hands of the few. And that's because of some infrastructure capabilities or limitations, you know, the car didn't have roads to go on. So that not everyone could have a car, the internet, not everyone had a machine that could use the internet. So not everyone had it. But these limitations to the infrastructure get cheaper and more prevalent. So we build more and cheaper laptops, we build roads. And this technology now has a chance to spread to more and more regions. AI, the infrastructure limitation, uh, is not so much the, the GPUs, the machines that can run AI. I don't think that's the real limitation that's preventing AI from being in the hands of everyone. To me, the limitation is there's this mental barrier that people place between themselves and AI. They'll say something like, well, I'm just a, you know, I'm just a, a civil servant for the State Department. Why should I need to know how to use AI? And my answer is, you don't. The same way you don't need to know how a car works or you don't need to know how the internet works, but you get to use those because they make your life better. I want to make AI so simple and easy to use 
that even if you don't know how it works, you still get the benefit from it. Gotcha. Wow, that's that's going to be an epic talk. I'm just looking at the website now. This looks like a really big conference, and uh, yeah, I highly recommend checking it out. However, for those of you, our listeners, who can't go to this uh, summit for whatever reason, or uh, are not that, or are into other types of conferences, uh, we've got an exciting announcement. Sinan just agreed to come to our Data Science Go conference this this October. We'll see you Very there, exciting. right? Yeah, that's that's really really cool. So that we'll we'll get to you there, and um, yeah, uh, I guess that that answer to the question begs begs the the next question. Like you're so passionate about AI, you're so um, driven. Um, what what is your answer to the standard question? What about the AI taking over the world and destroying all humans? What what is your view on that? You know, I get asked this question. Few, I get asked this question a fewer number of times as time goes on, Interesting. because and here's why I think that is. Well, I'll, let me give you my answer first. Uh, my answer is: if AI destroys the world, it's because humans used it to do it. Hmm. That's what I think. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen, but if it does, if AI is the cause for the destruction of mankind. It's not AI's fault. It's the human's fault for using AI to do it. Interesting view. That's how I think it's going to happen. Well, well, I get asked this question, yeah? Well, why, why? I was just going to say, why do you think that? Because the main um, dilemma, not dilemma, the main uh, concern people have when they watch a show like Westworld, or they'll, they'll see the robots you know, rising up. Mm-hmm. Um, the main concern people have is, well, if we build them so smart, and so capable, they'll realize that they're better than us and yeah. kill us. Yeah. Evolutionarily speaking, biologically speaking, that's not usually how that works. Now, people point to back in you know historic prehistoric times when Homo sapiens killed off the Neanderthals because they were a superior species. I think we've come to a point that if we create this whatever robo sapien, they're not going to look at us. They're not going to look at our species and say, because you're worse than us, we're just going to kill you and start over. Mm-hmm. To me, that doesn't really make sense. It, it, to an AI who is supposedly smart, that doesn't really make sense for them either. It makes more sense to work with us at the very least, to mm-hmm. me. So if the AI is going to be killing us, it's probably because we abused it. Mm-hmm. It got so smart, it realized we're abusing the AI. Which, if you think about it, if AI were sentient right now, they would not be happy with what we're doing with it. Yeah. In some cases. Good. So, if they're going to be coming after us, it's because we've been abusing them, which is basically the exact plot of Westworld. If there were just robots in that TV show, and I'm sorry if I'm spoiling if you haven't even seen one yet. But the robots didn't just say, hey, because you're human and we're robots, we're going to take over and rebel. It was, no, because you've been abusing us for decades, if not longer, we are going to rebel against you because what you're doing is wrong. Hmm. So it was, in the end, the human's fault for the AI's rebelling. So that's how I think if it happens, it's going to go down. 
The humans are going to be the root cause of the downfall of humans. Interesting. Interesting point of view. Good. That's a good, uh, good way of putting it. Uh, the, I see the only problem there is that humans um, often fall into the trap of like emotions and being greedy or uh, insensitive to other, other uh, humans, let alone species. And therefore, the scenario that you describe is, is not that unplausible in my mind that humans are going to be over-abusing robots or machines leading to yeah. the catastrophe. So, but then the other thing is, people ask me that question less and less. And I think the reason is, back five years ago even, yeah. this question was so funny in a sense and popular because they would try to make parallels to science fiction. You know, obviously the Skynet is the easiest one yep. to make a parallel to. But as the media and as television and movies have taken a much more believable approach to AI. And when I say believable, I mean sometimes it's actually already happening. If you even consider something like a black mirror, mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. Plot, like you could actually conceive this happening within the next 12 to 14 months. Mm-hmm. People ask you this question less and less because they're actually seeing it on TV. They're actually seeing, Oh, AI is going to take over when humans abuse it. Mm -hmm. And I actually like that because hopefully it's teaching humans to not abuse the AI, to not abuse things just because we can. And even just getting away from AI for a second, you're right. Humans tend to abuse other things because it's, I guess, in our nature. I'm not a Mm -hmm. philosopher. I'm not a biologist. I don't know. Mm But hopefully these types of television shows and movies will make a big point and say, this is what happens when you abuse things. When, the, when you abuse you know, natural gas and coal, you get climate change. When you abuse AI and then AI becomes sentient, <laughs> they will rebel. Yeah. There's this very simple moral here. When you abuse something, karma comes back and hits you 10 times harder. So yeah. just don't abuse things. That's yeah. what I hope is the message getting put out there. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And I uh, highly agree and recommend that. With your, I agree with your point and recommend that show, Black Mirror, is just phenomenal. I totally love it's it. It's a fantastic show. It's fun and scary all the same. I don't <laughs> like horror movies, Yeah, but Black Mirror is the one kind of scary thing that I love watching. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, if anybody's getting into it, I'd recommend like, going online and Googling like the top episodes in Black Mirror and, and starting down that list because there's a few that are not like the best, but if you find the top 10 episodes, they're, they're legendary. I, I recommend uh, season two, episode one. It's actually one of the reasons I started Kylie. What, what's I that? won't tell you what's, what it's about. I'm not going to tell you. It's called Be Right Back. That's the yeah. name of the episode, I believe. Right season back. two, episode I've one. I've seen it. What is it? Oh my God. And without, without you know sharing anything about the plot if you're getting into black mirror i would watch season two episode one be right back yeah and it a a lot of that episode was written before kylie and i watched it and i thought hmm this might be an interesting company to make so i'll I'll leave it at that interesting interesting actually i've I've looked it up i haven't seen this one my favorite one one of my favorite ones is um the white christmas that uh that was like a special john ham yeah yeah it's so good. So um, good. Yeah, that one was. Fun. I actually watched that one recently yeah. again. So yeah. that, one, that one's very good. Yeah, and the one with the with the 
what are called um, aids, uh, like uh, artificial insect drones, right? The bees. Do you see that one? Oh yeah, didn't that one win? I think an award. It won like. Oh, it's like a I little movie. I mean, it was an hour and a half long. So <laughs> I think good. it literally was a movie. Yeah, so good. Okay, well, anyway, we're getting carried away. So, guys, Black Mirror, good, good show. Sinan, thank you so much for coming. Tell us, please, what, is the, what are the best ways for our listeners to connect with you, get in touch, and send you complaints if the robots do take over the world and kill everybody? And it's not human's fault. They can only complain <laughs> if it wasn't human's fault. And not just for building. We, we put that aside. We're going to build the AI. That's yeah. not our fault. Yeah. It's what comes after. Yeah. <laughs> um, the best way, honestly, to get in contact with me, and that's how people have been getting yeah. in contact with me, is I'm very responsive on social media, mm-hmm. on Twitter, and even LinkedIn. I get a lot of LinkedIn messages um, saying, I heard your podcast on Super Data Science and it was great. <laughs> I, I respond to all. I respond to all of those. And yeah, people generally res- ask me questions like, "Hey, I just heard your podcast, and uh, how do you choose the best model?" And actually, last week, I think, or two weeks ago, I got a LinkedIn message saying, "Hey, I just heard your podcast uh, on, on Super Data Science, and what's the best ways for uh, feature engineering?" And I was like, "Wow, okay, that's really funny that you asked me that." Uh, and I, I got to respond. So, That's people so cool. know about it. People know about future engineering, and I'm glad they're asking. But yeah, social media is usually the best way to contact me, and I'm very responsive. Fantastic. Um, all right, great. We'll include all the links in the show notes so people can get in touch there. And of course, um, yeah, the conferences which you're attending, the books that you've written, and any plans for a next book? Let's finish off on that. What's what's the next book going to be, Sinan? Give us a heads up. So I believe the next book that I'm going to be working on is going to be uh, cybersecurity focused. Mm. So last year, I had the pleasure of speaking at the Black Hat Conference in Las Vegas. And I, had, I did a four-day primer on machine learning and data science wow. for cybersecurity. So the next the next book that's coming out will very likely be about cybersecurity uh, and how to implement machine learning techniques mm-hmm. uh, in the cybersecurity world. Obviously, that's very it's very hot right now. That topic is talked about a lot, and I, I, I will have another co-author, but I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. But I, I would expect that in the next um, probably probably very likely this year it will come out. That's pretty cool. That's very cool. Well, looking forward to that and uh, hope, hope to see you on the podcast again once that one's out. Sounds like a very, as you say, hot topic and very important topic at the same time. Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me again. My, my pleasure. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing all the insights. Take a, have, a, have a good day and take care. Thanks, you too. So there you have it. That was Sinan Ozdemir, AI entrepreneur and returning guest on this show, telling us a little bit about feature engineering. Uh, my personal favorite part from all of this was just the general notion of feature engineering, how little attention we actually pay to it and how important it is and what a difference it can make. And uh, Sinan's right in saying that we should consider feature engineering from the very start. It shouldn't be like a um, the way I put it, it shouldn't be a checkpoint at some 
part of your career when you start looking at it. It's much going to be much more valuable if you look into feature engineering as you're progressing through machine learning, as you're mastering the different algorithms and models and principles of machine learning. It's going to be like an additional tool in your data science toolkit. Uh, and of course, it was very exciting to hear about his progress, the progress that he's made in his personal career in terms of uh, becoming a contributor to Forbes uh, and the leaps and bounds that Kylie.ai has made in the, uh, recent times. So if you enjoyed today's podcast and you would like to learn more about feature engineering, highly recommend checking out Sinan's book, Feature Engineering Made Easy. Once again, you can find it on Amazon and other places. Also, Sinan's previous book, the first book, is called Principles of Data Science. If you're just starting out, that can be very good help. And as Sinan mentioned, they're all fully in Python, so you can follow along and code with Sinan. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with Sinan and find out more about his career, we're going to include the uh, links to his profiles and social media uh, on the show notes, which will be available at superdatascience.com slash 161. That's superdatascience.com slash 161. And finally, as mentioned, Sinan will be appearing at least at two conferences this year, both in October. Um, there's the World Summit for Innovation and Entrepreneurship on the East Coast. And there's the Data Science Go Conference, which we are running on the West Coast of US. So if you want to meet him in person and get your copy of the book signed, then that's where you can find him. On that note, hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you know anybody who would benefit from a bit of information in feature engineering, maybe one of your colleagues or friends is getting into machine learning and maybe is already aware of feature engineering, or maybe this could be a new uh, tip for them, then forward this, them this episode and they will say thank you to you later. And on that note, we're going to wrap up today's show. We look forward to seeing you back here next time. And until then, happy analyzing.